All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. Today we are continuing in our teaching series called Rock of Ages, our learning adventure with the Apostle Peter. And uh, today is week 24, I believe. Yeah, and it's called Safely Home. Safely Home. Uh, I don't know how this will hit you, how this will land with you, but today we are finishing 1 Peter. We will, huh? No, I think it's, oh, did I turn it off or on? Check, check. Oh, hey, 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 there it is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, leave it to the worship leader <laughs> to know when the microphone's on or off. Uh, yeah, we've reached the end of uh, First Peter, uh, Peter's first letter. Now, we've been in it for 24 weeks now, pretty much. You know, we started off with some weeks about Peter's life and experiences and his formative uh, relationship with Jesus. But um, it's been good. It's been good. And I think it's been also beneficial to return pretty regularly to one of the overarching themes of Peter's letter about suffering and suffering well and how our suffering unites us with Christ and it, it actually identifies us more strongly with God's family, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it's been an understanding among the believers, among Christian brothers and sisters since the very uh, inception of the church. So it's important for us to understand uh, that dynamic and that reality as well. As you came in today, maybe you received this um, high-tech handout I made um, of an airplane. Yes, you see this? That's an airplane. It's not like a Rorschach test. It's like, what do you see in this? Yes, it's an airplane with chicken pox. So hold on to that. That'll make sense here in a second. During the uh, pitched battles of World War II... The United States was fighting in Europe on, on the sea, on the land, and in the air. They were, they were waging massive bombing campaigns, usually launched out of England, out of the UK. Just squadrons of bomber aircraft would fly over to Germany and uh, drop bombs. We were sending massive bombing campaigns, waging massive bombing campaigns on mainland Europe. Waves of bombers flew in formation over German cities and strategic targets to deliver loads of bombs intended to destroy enemy forces. My grandfather flew B-24 Liberators. My grandfather completed 19 missions over Europe. He bailed out of one aircraft over France, and he ditched two other aircraft in the ocean. Um, I, he had a big scar under his chin from uh, one time he had to bail out. And, or the time he had to bail out, he opened his parachute, and uh, it was a little too loose. And uh, so the chest strap jumped up, and the buckle <laughs> cut him. So he had to land, in the, I believe, in the ocean <laughs> with his chin bleeding, which always makes you feel good to be bleeding in the ocean. Uh, through swarms of anti-aircraft fire from below, these brave pilots and crew, they flew, and they routinely suffered intense direct fire and also shrapnel damage. Do you know what shrapnel is? When uh, uh, bombs and ordnance in the air explodes, it throws metal shards. So direct fire from anti-aircraft guns, but also uh, shrapnel damage from flak, from uh, other explosive ordnance in the air. As, uh, as the fighter and bomber aircraft returned from these missions, patterns emerged about where 
the returning aircraft were being damaged. Okay, you see on your little handout, those red marks indicate where they started tracking where these returning aircraft were most heavily damaged. So you notice that there's a pattern here. These aircraft are being damaged in particular places. Over and over again, aircraft were limping home, riddled with bullet holes on the wingtips, in the midsection, and on the tail stabilizers. So obviously concerned, Air, Army Air Corps uh, engineers, they got to work. They got to work uh, figuring out how do we strengthen and protect these most commonly damaged parts of the aircraft. However, a mathematician named Abraham Wald, he one day suggested that, you know what? Perhaps the reason certain areas of the planes weren't covered in bullet holes was that planes that were shot in certain critical areas did not return. There's this paradigm shift that says, wait a second, maybe the planes that didn't return, maybe they were shot in those white areas. Maybe only the airplanes that were shot in these non-critical areas were the ones that were able to make it safely home. So that was a paradigm shift. Instead of being uh, distracted or uh, get, getting tunnel vision for like, oh, how do we repair or reinforce these damaged areas? They had to ask a better question that says, wait, what about these areas that aren't damaged? Maybe those are the ones that are causing planes to not return. In a big perspective shift, suddenly everyone realized what should have been obvious from the beginning. The planes hit in certain critical areas did not make it home. While almost all the planes were damaged on the missions in one, one way or another, the ones damaged in the cockpit area, in the wing midsections, in the engines, and in the tail section fuselage, they were no longer airworthy and almost always crashed, never being able to fly and return safely home. With this grim understanding then, the engineers shifted their focus. They started to design reinforcement and armor for the areas without bullet holes on these planes. They looked at where there weren't bullet holes uh, on these planes uh, that did return in order to protect those that had not returned. To learn from their mistakes and bring better survivability based on the information they had. In uh, a publication called the Flight Journal, there, uh, it said, This shows that the reasons why we are missing certain data may be more meaningful than the available data itself. In questions of aircraft design, don't only listen to what the evidence says, listen also to what is not being said. You understand that? Don't just look at the data that's being presented. Think also what is being said by the data that is not being presented here. What's absent? What's not being said? So, closing his first letter to his fellow believers in modern-day Turkey, Peter wants to emphasize the most important thing about standing firm in Jesus Christ. As you know, his readers are, had been living under pressure. They'd been living under threat. They'd been ostracized and abused. They'd been persecuted for their faith. And some had even suffered to the point of death. So what were the most critical areas in their life with Christ that needed to be reinforced? 
What were the essential skills, the places that needed to be bolstered and strengthened? Where does the full armor of God most necessarily need to be applied? What, is Peter, what did he see taking place? What did Peter see taking place in the church as his fellow believers had gone out daily on mission and come home wounded and come home scarred, uh, some even destroyed, some having even turned from their faith, some believers even capitulating to the pressure and apostatizing, turning from their faith, rejecting Jesus as Lord. So what was happening? He was paying attention. What patterns had emerged in those who were attacked but were able to return safely home and those who were attacked and did not? What were they noticing? What areas of faith and of belief and of practice must be most safeguarded if we are to persevere to the end, if we are to withstand the enemy's attacks? What vulnerabilities lead to Christ followers apostatizing or abandoning their faith? What is it, what vulnerabilities are there that lead to crashing and burning among believers as they capitulate under social and governmental pressure to comply and to conform? Well, recalling uh, our talk from last week, Peter exhorts us to all do three things in our daily walk. Three things that are important practices, uh, essential ways that we reinforce our walk with the Lord. Watch out, stand firm, and don't forget. Watch out, stand firm, and don't forget. Watch out. Peter says, stay alert to the enemy who is on the prowl like a what? A lion looking for who he can devour. Remember that word we said in the, in the original language means not nibble, not snack, but gulp. Destroy you in one big gulp, right? Watch out. Stay alert to the enemy who is on the prowl. Stand firm, Peter says. Be strong in your faith. Be intentionally rooted in Scripture and, and strengthened in the spiritual disciplines of prayer, of fasting, of silence, solitude, all those spiritual disciplines that you're familiar with or should be familiar with in the Christian faith. Thirdly, don't forget. Someone last night, I was at a graduation celebration for my son, Brennan. What? Where is Brennan? I don't know where. And, oh, and Claudia and uh, Josiah. Are Brennan and Josiah goofing off somewhere? Oh, there they are. I see. Okay, you're okay now. But uh, one of the speakers said something about how remembering is holy. There's a holiness that comes with remembering, that God so often needs us, calls us, requires us to remember His activity in our life, remember the redemptive works He's done. Uh, there's something necessary about remembering. So Peter says, don't forget. Know this, that God is faithful, and He has placed you among others so you can draw strength from them. So he says, don't forget, you're not alone. You are part of, you've been placed in a family of faith of family, of believers, of other brothers and sisters who have experienced this same deliverance, this same assurance that comes through Christ. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, let's read uh, verses 8 through 14. Stay alert. Watch out 
For your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power to him forever. Amen. Verse 12. I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with Christian love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. So what do we see here happening at the very end of the letter? We see, uh, I can imagine, Peter taking the pen uh, from his friend and from, the, from his scribe named uh, Silas, or your Bible might say Silvanus. Um, Peter takes a moment because he wants to write in his own hand. He wants to write a personal part of his letter. He writes in his own hand in, his own hand in order to give a final word of encouragement, which really wasn't that uncommon. Uh, you'll run into some that are like, yeah, it's questionable as to whether or not Peter actually wrote 1 Peter. You know, eh, there's really no way to tell. Well, it says it right here at the end. Peter didn't actually write this down. He actually identifies who his scribe was. And it betrays an, a lack of understanding about how the first century world worked. Not many people were literate enough to read and write, and to write well. There was a very uh, esteemed uh, profession in the, ancient, uh, in the ancient world called being a scribe. Do you know what a scribe did? They wrote professionally. They were professional writers. When they weren't copying works, because they didn't have printing presses, right? Copying works day in and day out, they were being hired to write letters. So what you could imagine here through the first, you know, these five chapters of 1 Peter's letter, I imagine Peter kind of pacing around in a room with Silas at a desk, and he's dictating this letter to his brothers and sisters, to people he knows. He can see their faces in his mind. It's like, I want the, my friends to know this word of encouragement. And Silas uh, faithfully is writing these words down. But here at the end, you can see Peter come over to the desk and say, hey, hey, Sil, Sile, Sila, whatever he called him as a you know, pet name, you know, SV. Can I have the quill? He takes the big feather from him or whatever, and I want to write a word in my own. Because Peter, Paul did this too, right? You remember some of uh, the end of Paul's letters? Uh, many historians think Paul had uh, poor eyesight, and so he didn't write his own letters down very often. But sometimes he did, and at one of the end of his letters, I don't remember which one, he's like, see how large I write. You can tell it's me. So apparently Paul was like, P, A, you know, uh, anyway. I say all that to say this. Peter wanted his readers to know something from his heart. He wanted to leave them with a word of heartfelt encouragement, of final encouragement. Now, who is this Silas character? Have we heard of Silas before? Do we run into Silas elsewhere? Well, he says he's a faithful brother. Silas here is almost certainly the same Silas that is mentioned by Luke in Acts chapter 15 and by the Apostle Paul in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He was a faithful brother. 
I mean, is it important and valuable to be a gifted writer and secretary? But man, to be called by the Apostle Peter, a faithful brother. Man, what would that be worth? That Silas was, I mean, in just a short number of words, a few words, we learn a lot about Silas. He's a, got good penmanship, and he's a solid brother. He loves Jesus, and he's a faithful friend. While not uncommon for a person dictating a letter to write in their own hand, giving salutation at the end, let's pay, play, let's pay close attention to what Peter actually says here in verses, verse 12. Uh, I have written and I sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Everything Peter has said to us thus far has been in service to, in order to accomplish two things. One, to encourage you in your faith, right? And then secondly, to assure you that all the hardship that you've endured all the difficulties that you've experienced are part of God's grace in your life. Through these things, God is expressing a particular grace in your life. None of these things are happening outside of His sovereignty or outside of His will. He's able to use and express His grace through them in your life. And I don't know who needs to hear that today. That's sometimes a, sometimes a difficult lesson to accept. But I love it, the assurance we get from Peter and from so many others throughout the New Testament that this is the way that, one of the ways God is showing His grace in our lives. In the midst of all the discomfort and the anxiety, Peter wants his readers to know that God has not abandoned them, but is with them in a very special way, especially in those hard times. Surprisingly, in the shared experience of suffering, you find special fellowship with Jesus and you are more and more marked out as part of God's very own family. This becomes the mark of God's very own family. Just as, just as battle damage in World War II proved that an aircraft was part of the fleet, so these wounds that we endure for Christ's sake Prove our identity in Him. Did you hear that? It's like, how did you know that a bomber had flown in World War II? <laughs> From all the scars, the, the, the bullet wounds, the flak marks. Well, likewise, uh, the wounds that we endure for Christ's sake, they prove more and more our identity in Him. In the end, this communion of suffering will prove a treasure. It may not feel like it now, but in the end, we'll look back on it and say, thank you. Thank you. So many times in the moment, we're like, God, deliver me from this. Please make it stop. But someday, a time is coming where we, with more perfect knowledge, will look back and say, oh, thank you. Thank you. It'll be a treasure. However, there are areas in the Christian life that must be guarded and protected if we are to persevere. If we are to, to, to remain standing in the face of that suffering, uh, if we're to persevere in that grace that is being showed to us by God through Christ Jesus. So what are they? First, in verse 8, we hear Peter warn us to watch out, be alert. There's a prowling lion on the loose. 
Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is an enemy actively intent on destroying you and devouring you. There is no neutral ground in this life. Do you believe me? I mean, there, you think, hey, I'm not bothering anybody. How I live, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's cool. No, there's no neutral ground. You're either living for God or living against God. I mean, there's no, it's like being in a river. There's no just sitting still. You're moving with or against. And there's this enemy that wants to pull you away. Not paying attention makes you more vulnerable. It makes you an easy target. You see, aircraft in World War II, they didn't take off on a mission without a lot of planning and preparation. They didn't take off without a detailed flight plan, without an extensive intel briefing or intelligence briefing. Uh, they were clear and clarified on their mission objectives, and they also had in place emergency procedures in case things went really wrong. They knew what to do in case of emergency. We must likewise then be students of the Word. We must prepare. We must be students of the Word. We must be practiced in God's wisdom. We must be faithful to the church's witness. And we must be alert to what's going on around us. The enemy is wily, but he's not perfect. The enemy is vicious, but he's predictable. Do you hear me say this? The enemy, the devil, the lion that is on the prowl is wily, yes, but he's not perfect. The enemy, the devil, is vicious, but he's also predictable. He follows predictable patterns. While we cannot see into the future, we can know what to expect from the enemy. His angles of attack, his threats, and his bases of operation. Now, there's some ways in which we're all, certain things we all need to be aware of. But then for each of us, there's individual ways that over and over again, you've seen the enemy attack. You know the ways that the devil, the lion on the prowl, is predictable in your life, don't you? I mean, surely you're paying enough <laughs> attention there, right? I know things I ought not to go, do, places I ought not go, because I know I'm more vulnerable there in my thought life, in my behaviors. I have to avoid them because I know those places are rife with threat for me. Now, there's things, like I said, in general, that you would just, as a believer, you ought not do because the devil is at work there. But I think the greatest danger comes from those personal, private angles of attack in our life. So watch out. Be alert. A prowling lion is on the loose. Secondly, Peter says, stand firm. Stand firm. He encourages us to do whatever it takes to become strong in our faith. Be disciplined in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Begin with scripture study and meditation. Begin with a, with a habit of prayer and of the, of the spiritual disciplines. Look at verse 9, the first part of it. He says, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Stand firm against the devil and be strong in your faith. You see, if World War II pilots, if, when they weren't flying missions, what were they doing? Practicing missions. When they weren't flying missions, they were rehearsing. They were flying training exercises. They were studying the flight manuals, and they were inspecting their aircraft. Why? Because their lives depended on it. Their lives depended on it. They were committed to maximum familiarity with their aircraft and with their crew so that they all might survive. 
that they all might make it safely home. Likewise, in the with God life, we rehearse and we study, we inspect our faith, we pursue maximum familiarity with God's word, and we seek to maximize trust in the fellowship. Do you see the parallel there? But do we do that? Do we see the threat? Do we respond appropriately by saying, I'm going to familiarize myself with God's word as much as possible, given my hours in the day. I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to hide God's Word in my heart. I'm going to be practiced in prayer. And I'm going to be investing intentionally in the Christian fellowship that I, so that I'm not alone. I'm going to rely on safety in numbers here. I'm going to know my crew. So look at, uh, this is kind of a sneak peek, and I hope this isn't a spoiler that's ruining everything for you. But look at 2 Peter. Just stay on that page. Just look over to the right. 2 Peter. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He starts his second letter. This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you to share the same precious faith we have. I'm writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, verse 3. By His divine power, God has given us what? everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share His divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. Think about that. By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. How does that make you feel? Everything we need has been given to us. So what is our response? Well, first, thanks. <laughs> That's awfully kind of you. And then secondly, let's get busy here. Let's discover, let's embrace, let's live in the reality of this all that's been given to you to live a godly life. God has given us His grace and everything we need for a victorious, faithful life. Now it is our responsibility to plant our feet in it and grow, to hold fast and to endure. Ours is to study it. Ours is to practice it, to rehearse it so that we can genuinely live it out and withstand the fire that is coming our way from the enemy of our souls. I know there's a lot of battle imagery going on here, warfare, but that's what it is. If you could see with the eyes of the Spirit that when you go out of here, there's a battle being waged for your very soul, for your children's souls, for your friends' and family's souls, you would be preparing differently, wouldn't you? You'd be doing everything you can to be rehearsed and to be ready as you go out to withstand the incoming fire. So watch out. Stand firm. And then thirdly, Peter reminds his readers, don't forget. In our highly individualized, uh, emotionally driven Christian faith here in the American we <laughs> in Western culture in America, we sometimes neglect the importance of, maybe we've never even realized the importance of community. I've said it oftentimes that the call to follow Christ is the call into community. In your walk with Jesus, <laughs> this will sound like heresy, I know. There is no me, it's we. There's no lone rangers out there. Yes, God saved you through Jesus Christ when you confessed faith in Him and surrendered your life to Him. Yes, but what, was the, what happened next? You were made part of His family. 
You were placed among a fellowship to practice your faith. To practice. God placed you intentionally among people that make it hard sometimes. I mean, like Grady. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, I mean, think about it. Like, we've talked about this, like the, the, the fruits of the Spirit that are listed. Look at, through the fruits of the Spirit. How many of those are designed to be practiced uh, as a personal, private discipline? Think about it. Look through. How many of these require somebody else? Love, joy, peace, patience, <laughs> self-control. Yeah, but that still requires other people sometimes, right? God has placed you in this laboratory <laughs> where you get to run these experiments. Sometimes you fail, sometimes you're successful, but you're around people that make spiritual fruit uh, more evident in you or the lack of spiritual fruit more evident in you. Amen. The call to follow Christ is a call into community. Peter reminds his readers, don't forget, you are not alone. Look at verse 9b in uh, 1 Peter 5. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering you are. Imagine, put yourself in the sandals of the first century reader of this letter or hearer of this letter for, for Peter or whoever's reading this letter to him to say, hey, the Apostle Peter wants you to know you're not alone. All your brothers and sisters across Asia Minor, across uh, Turkey, across, you know, uh, back in Jerusalem even, across the Roman Empire, they're familiar with your suffering because they're enduring it as well. So don't lose hope. You're not alone. Together we can make it through. And that's encouraging, isn't it? It's encouraging. You're not alone. You're a part of Jesus Christ's global family. You are sharing in the battle and you are suffering, but you're also by, uh, within that discovering more and more of His life. What you are experiencing is not a sign of God's disapproval. It is the mark of family. It is, a, it is an identifying characteristic of those following in Jesus Christ's steps. You are being given the privilege of suffering with Him, and in doing so, you will also share in His glory. This sometimes is a foreign concept to us. But in that suffering, we're identified with Him, but we will also share in His glory. My grandfather... He never took off on a mission by himself. Never did you see a B-17 or a B-24 bomber in World War II and get your binoculars out and look, and it was just my grandpa flying it by himself. You know how many people it took to fly a bomber? Like eight, I think. A lot. I mean, several people were in that. If it was flying, a whole team of people, a whole crew was involved. My grandfather never took off on a mission by himself. He flew in formation. He flew side by side with others, and they were keeping an eye on each other, both in the aircraft and around the aircraft. Everyone in the flak-filled skies over Germany, they understood the risk, and they had, at various levels, vowed to protect each other. They had vowed to fly together, to fight together, and if and when necessary, to die together. There was a blood bond between these, these, these uh, crew members. We'll fly together, we'll fight together, and if the time comes, we'll die together. We will not break the bond of trust that we have. Likewise, we, as Jesus' people, we go out into the world always alert, standing firm, 
knowing that we're never alone, trusting that whatever may happen, we are in this together, and by God's grace, we will make it safely home. And that's our hope. So hold fast to that. Therefore, Peter says, I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these words from Scripture, I pray that they would be words that have been breathed into life by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know some of my friends here uh, have been under attack. They've been uh, maligned. They've been uh, rejected. Lord, even in the comfort and the insulation of our American first world context, the enemy is still at work. The strategies of the enemy uh, are in some ways unique to our context, but some, in some ways the same as they've always been throughout history among mankind because um, he's always been a deceiver. He's always been an accuser. And deception and accusation has always been possible among people just like us. So God, I pray that we would heed your wisdom expressed to us through the Apostle Peter today. That we would decide in our hearts to do whatever it takes to watch out. To stand firm in our faith. And to remember, to not forget that we're in this together. Word tells us that wherever two or three are gathered in Christ's name, He's in our midst. And so God, I pray that we would hold fast to that truth. That when we're together, under the Lordship of Jesus, He is in our midst. He is strengthening us, guiding us, protecting us. And with Him, we will all be led safely home. So God, do a work in this time. I think there's a lot of fear, a lot of misunderstanding, maybe a lot of willful ignorance, actually. But God, may we hear the truth of uh, the Apostle Peter's words. May we hear your words spoken through him, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. Do a work in this place, we ask. We're going to take a moment to just pray. Sit with the Lord. Lay these things before him. Say, God, help me see the ways that I've not been paying attention. I've not been watching out. I've been blissfully unaware of the enemy's attack, and the enemy has been running wild in my life running wild, causing so much harm and damage in the life of, of the people I love. Help me see more clearly. And then help me stand firm. Plant my feet in the truth of the Word. Help me develop roots of godliness to help me stand fast in the face of challenges and persecution. And then also help me remember, help me press in and be vulnerable enough to rely on my Christian brothers and sisters that you've called together here in this local place. That we might be identified with you and we might also share in your glory through faithfulness. Lord, do work in this place. That's our prayer.